0: Welcome to Season 3 of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, behavior scientist, and burnout survivor. I interview DEI leadership and mental health experts to uncover burnout solutions at the individual, family, work, and cultural levels. When mums thrive, the world benefits please take a moment to check out my website at www.drjacquelinecurr.com. Click on the free guides button and find solutions for burnout that support individual, team, and organizational change. If you're worried about regrettable turnover, but already have too much on your plate, I can provide a comprehensive roadmap to help you improve wellness, belonging, and engagement, Through an overarching burnout prevention strategy, so you can have thriving, diverse leadership teams. This week's guests, Dr. Amy Beacon and Sue Campbell, wrote the Parental Leave Playbook and provide support through the Center for Parental Leave Leadership. Maternity leave has such an important connection to burnout because it creates a trajectory for mums returning to work, depending on how long and how much support they had during leave. Mums can also be going into maternity leave with high levels of stress already, or can be returning to stressful situations with very little support for that transition. I hope you learn as much from this conversation as I did. Just a warning, this episode includes mention of suicide ideation and postpartum psychosis.
1: My name is Dr. Amy Beacom, and I am the founder and CEO of the Center for Parental Leave Leadership. I am also the mother of a 15-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl and live on the West Coast.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Sue, please go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello. I am Sue Campbell, and I'm
2: co-author of the Parental Leave Playbook with Dr. Amy Beacom, And I've worked with Amy at the Center for Parental Leave Leadership for about seven or eight years now. And I live with my husband and two children, ages 15 and
0: six in Portland, Oregon. Great. Thank you so much. Let's get started. If each of you can briefly describe your journey to where you are
1: now in your career and including how the two of you met and partnered up. I love when people ask me this question because I always have a different answer. Like the thing that comes to mind is always so different. And today when you say that, I'm thinking that my career really did start in my undergrad work. I was asked and offered to be part of a student support for two faculty writing a book called Gender and Privilege, which was looking at the way two different schools that had previously been Uh, one all-female and one all-male integrated the opposite sex in the same year. And getting to study that process and learn about gender in that very formative time in my career and my thinking really played a big part in what I do today. So from there, I worked in executive leadership, and coaching back in the mid nineties, I would do one of my favorite things was we would take executives from the East coast and I would give them a tour of work-life balance, what it was called at the time, work-life balance things that companies were doing on the West coast. And we would take them to Levi's and show them what a job share was and take them to Patagonia and show them what flex work hours were and what a lactation station was, (laughs) which is what they call the lactation room back then. And that, that sort of led into my next phase, which was going back and getting my doctorate in organizational psychology, which I really did because I was staffing all these executive leadership programs. And there were very few women at the time that I could pull in that could work at that senior level. And that got me thinking about the leadership pipeline and how do we improve that? And what do we need to do? So Fast forward, I think I'm all cool and smart about work-life balance when I'm doing my doctorate and working in New York. And and then I got pregnant with my first child and (laughs) became a parent and was completely blindsided by what was expected of me and what I needed to do both in my career, in my work, and in my home life. And so I changed the focus of my research from women's leadership and development and coaching to focus and create a new field of coaching around the parental leave time frame, which is what I've done with creating the Center for Parental Leave Leadership. Eight years ago, the first consultancy in the country to focus exclusively on parental leave. And we're here today because of the book that Sue co-authored with me that we published last winter called the Parental Leave Playbook, which is the first book to offer an evidence-based and heart-centered approach to navigating parental leave, sort of a coach in your hands kind of book to walk you through the model and the frameworks that we've been using for many years, both here and abroad.
0: Great, that's wonderful. And I'm so excited to get into the book, also having come from a research and implementation background. So, Sue, tell us how you got to meet Amy and your trajectory here and whether motherhood played a part in it as well.
2: Oh, sure. So, I was working in human resources in a regional government and was coming up through the ranks was an up and coming employee but i had really always wanted to be a writer so i was freelance writing on the side of my day job and i had a young child who was starting first grade and we met all of the other parents in the first grade class and amy was one of them and i had like many women a rude awakening when i became a mother and realized all that was involved and how little cultural support and social infrastructure was available. I was really expecting someone to hand me a plan of here's how all of this works. Here's what you do. And nobody was doing that. So when Amy found out that I was a freelance writer, she invited me to coffee, this little coffee shop near her house, and basically started telling me about work and what she found in her dissertation. And I was just flabbergasted. I was like, whoa. And one of the things that really struck me was the U.S. on a federal level was not at all ready to implement any sort of paid leave policy. So I thought it was absolutely brilliant that Amy wanted to create systemic change by going through your employer because that's where the biggest impact was to be had and that it could be a win-win for employers and employees. And I was like, sign me up. She's like, I need someone to help me write some stuff. And I'm like, sign me up. Let's do it. And then very shortly after that, I ended up getting pregnant with my second child. And just the experience of how I was able to leave my leave with Amy's guidance and what I was learning while working on the side with Amy made a huge difference impact on my second experience. And I eventually decided to leave my city job. And Amy and I have been working together in one capacity or another ever since. And I just really share her passion to get a better way of handling this into everyone's hands, because it is one of those things where there's no loser if we do a better job with this. There are
0: absolutely no losers. And I'm so excited to have this discussion. And Amy, like you described, being sideswiped by motherhood can happen to so many women. But I think one of the things that I wanted to hear from you before we delve in to also help us make this connection is your experience of burnout in your careers and, or if you haven't actually experienced that feeling of burnout, what are the things you're doing to manage burnout?
2: I have two very vivid examples. So one of them, I was working a full-time job with a regional government. My husband was working full-time as well. My youngest child was in daycare who luckily just like down the street from my office. I think she was about two when this happened of just that grind, You get up in the morning, you get everything ready, you get the child ready, you bring the child to daycare, feed the child before you leave, go to work, on your break, you pump, and then on your lunch, you go feed your child, and then you come back, and then you, on your next break, you pump, and then you go pick up your child, and you go home. There's so much repetition in caring for someone, and there's so much involved in executing at a level that you're proud of in a work environment and I remember one night at home just literally falling to my knees on the kitchen floor and yelling at my husband like I can't do all of this it was like my call to him of you don't see all of the things that I'm doing I can't keep doing all of these myself and just the look of absolute shock on his face because culturally we just accumulate. And we think we are supposed to continue to handle it and just take what is given and take the responsibility. And I was too young and too naive to see that there were other choices that were available to me. So it's like shedding some of that cultural conditioning to try to find your own path and find your own way was a really important part of that for me. So that was my earliest example with my first child. And then with my second child, it was during the pandemic. So when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, my youngest just turned five. Like she had her birthday during the spring break where everybody got sent for spring break and it turned out to be like a year's worth of spring break. And so I was working and what we had to do with my husband working, and he's an essential employee, right? He works on a water system. I would work, cram as much of my work in as possible on the weekends. And then I would be with My kids and my older kid is fairly self-sufficient, but the little one needed a lot of attention. I like to say she's like the border collie of children. (laughs) She needs a lot of exercise and she needs a job or she gets into trouble, right? So I was dealing with her and still doing client calls, having like Disney plus as the babysitter. (laughs) And I come from a Waldorf background. Both my kids have been through Waldorf and we embraced screens like never before. And you do it for a little while because you think it's going to be a few months tops. And before I was able to get childcare again, and again, I have reasons that I was choosing what I was choosing. And I recognize I was incredibly privileged in some of the choices I was able to make. But by the time people were vaccinated and I was comfortable getting childcare help from the outside, about 18 months had gone by. And I realized finally, when I got that help back, how close to the brink I was, right? Like just kissing that edge of burnout and like not alone so many people were going through the exact same thing during the pandemic. So that was another case where you hang on by your fingernails as long as you can when your circumstances present, but at some point you've got to pull back and look and get creative.
0: Right. And as you say, sometimes it's when you get the relief that you can look back and go, oh my goodness, I was close. And even at that point, Stopping and saying, okay, I was really close. So I do need some extra rest and re energizing. I really need to lean on this support now that I've got it. Exactly. And I appreciate it because I think it's really important for mums to hear it in your words. Because when they think about like the World Health Organization definition or something, it's like, what is even an occupational syndrome? It doesn't mean anything. And so I love to include this part as well, because I think in your words, recognizing what you went through is so helpful for women to hear.
1: I agree. And I also love that you're offering those stories to women because when you hear there's a resiliency that's available, if you think back in your own life on times you did face burnout or come up to that edge and thinking through what did I do? to avoid that or to not step over that edge or what did I do to come back from it if I did step over it so that you can avoid it in the future and really use those (laughs) gifts that you've been given from that time. And I say that in part because it relates to the story that came to mind for me, which is a little bit different. So I, I hope it's okay. I hope I'll find the words to make the connection so your listeners will understand why I choose this story. So for me, I was living in New York. I was working on my doctorate at Columbia, so high-pressured academic institution. I was a consultant in New York. I was renovating houses, and then I was pregnant. And I was the main breadwinner in our family and the main sort of leader of it in many ways. And then I had my son. And I, like I said earlier, I was really blindsided by that. And what ended up happening for me was I tilted into postpartum depression, veering into postpartum psychosis at times. And that was a really deep hole that I have spent 15 years coming back from. And the reason I use that example is because I think there's so many ways in which postpartum depression or anxiety or any of the perinatal mood and anxiety disorders that we face in this country really are a result of burnout and a lack of social structures and social systems and supports that we just don't have in this country. And so I don't think we talk enough about that relationship. And I've been lucky to get to learn a lot about this in the last 15 years. And one of those places where we see increased rates of postpartum depression or confusion around, is it postpartum psychosis? I'm hallucinating. I'm scared. I'm going to throw my baby down the stairs or out the window. Those kinds of thoughts are often purely the result of lack of sleep and exhaustion and burnout. So I think it's important for given the topic today for listeners to think about how really relying on their coping mechanisms and their tools that have worked for them or surrounding themselves with people during this time that can really help them find those tools if they don't have them at their ready, I suppose, is really important.
0: I really appreciate that example. And I know I've had feedback on my story and when I share it because I was at a place of suicide ideation. And where I share that, one of my friends who's a therapist said to me, but you don't want people to think that if they don't feel that they're not having burnout, that it has to be that serious. Burnout at any level is damaging. And so it is great to hear these different examples that you've both Provided. But for me, the other side of it is it is serious. And these examples of moms having these thoughts that can carry so much shame to them as well is a thing that they haven't talked about. So recently I was asking my husband about it and he said, talk about it. He goes, that's the part that doesn't get talked about. So yeah, I'm so glad that you provided that type of example, Amy. And from my perspective in public health, I'm working on a lot of projects around maternal health, which in the U.S., has some of the worst morbidity and mortality in the first year post-birth and the numbers increasing in the whole wide world. I'm so on your page with this being part of the healthcare system, part of the government legislation, but also our organizational system.
1: Exactly. And I just, I am always advocating for mental health and wellness and paternal or however you identify health and wellness around this time. I just want to say for any listeners around that suicide ideation piece, so much of that for people who are facing postpartum depression or perinatal, so many people think, oh, am i thinking about suicide. I must be going crazy. I must be. And then when we end up talking to them, they don't want To die, they want to sleep, they want a rest, they want a, a break. That's a thin line that people often don't know which side is which of. So, if that is something you're facing, there are wonderful people. One of our partner organizations is called Postpartum Support International. So if there's any thought of that in any of your listeners' minds, please reach out to us or to Postpartum Support International. They have a free network across the world of people, peer support, trained counselors who can help during this time.
0: Great, thank you for that. It's so important for us to address it straight on. And again, in retrospect, one thing that I learned was about emotions, right? What emotions are telling us, the emotions are guide. And so I was so appreciative in this book that it included the emotion of suicide ideation and it basically said it's an emotional guide to wanting a new life. You don't want your life to end, but you don't want the life you currently have. So what does that new life look like and how do you get there? And that was so helpful because I was like, yes, that just made more sense. It wasn't placed in shame in the same way I had to understand anger is representing boundaries, being stepped over. Sadness is when I'm ready to let go of something. I was having to learn all these things. And so when I learned that, it really did help me understand what I had gone through.
1: You also asked what we're doing to avoid burnout. And I think that is so important because the second moment that I would think of for myself around burnout is actually right now. And so what I'm doing as a daily practice right now is noticing, okay, Amy, you've just spent two years of a pandemic running a company, having both children at home, doing schooling. My daughter just went back into in-person learning right before Christmas, so she's just fairly newly back. I lost my mother this month and just that feeling of, okay, what around me is helping me not tip over the edge. And for me, that in part is having built a company that centers human lives at its very core. So making the space to support each other, to be able to walk away and take the time I need so that my team can get my back. And so I think for listeners, just noticing where that support exists around you and actually accepting that support is so critical.
0: And I appreciated that, Amy, in your out-of-office response that you shared that you were spending time with your mama in her last few days and that this was part of what we should be talking about in the workplace and being able to say, I have needs, I'm a human and I have needs here and that we need support for this. I really appreciated that because that's what normalizes it.
1: It's all big, one life and one work, and <laughs> you can't separate the two in the ways that we pretend to. So let's just
0: tie this uh, parental leave or paid leave in terms for any caregiver And in particular, working mom burnout, how do you see they're connected? Because I very much do in terms of potential trajectories that it starts, that ends up in burnout at some stage, or it's a time when you both described experienced burnout. So how do you see that the two are connected?
1: They're just so intimately connected because what I've tried to do in my work is make life less overwhelming during this very complex time where you're moving from what we often say, being a working person to being a working parent and all the different role changes and expectations and relationship changes that requires of you. I have created these 10 touch points. Oh, first, you just have to think about this time of parental leave as a transition that happens over time. It's not something that you're going to wake up one day and be like, oh, I've got this. I'm done. I've moved on. I'm on the other side of it. And so this connection to that time, the reason I focus my work on parental leave is because it was this time in a career and a life cycle that had the most opportunity to impact downstream later in life, at different transitions, at different moments. And when, I think of it as when everything is most chaotic in our lives, it's also the richest, most opportunity-filled moments. And depending on how we're supported and how we can access the love and the support around us or just the practical tools and resources around us will help us determine how we lay down our life going forward. So I imagine in my mind is like all these hats and clothes and things tossing up in the air. And then you, as they fall down, you pick which ones you want to build your life going forward. And so in the book, we teach you how to do that. And while we're talking about it in terms of parental leave, it is a process that you use, I hope, forever going forward anytime you're facing a transition or a change or something that's difficult and complex. And that's really what those touch points are so that if you're facing burnout or a move or a divorce or a death or a promotion, a more positive thing, you can really rely on some of the skills and the tools that we outline here. And that was something
0: I definitely noticed in the book and had a question about that in terms of how you see they can be applied to other parts of life. But let's get that to that in a minute. I keep saying let's get to it, but there is a lot of connections to make in the beginning. Sue, how is paid leave related to burnout?
2: Fundamentally, I feel it's related to burnout because we don't have a culture that provides us any sort of meaningful social infrastructure or evidence-based tools to handle this huge life challenge. We are just expected to take on more and more. And that is absolutely a recipe for burnout. We have to look at ways to do this differently if we expect people to come through it without burnout.
0: Great. Thank you. Very succinctly said there. So both of you actually mentioned evidence-based solutions. And obviously, as a researcher myself who has created solutions and worked so hard to make sure that they are evidence-based, those words have a great deal of meaning and weight for me. But can you just explain for the audience a little bit why that's so important, how you got the evidence? And then in academia, a lot of evidence we have isn't seen as being in the real world. So then when we try to take programs out to the real world, they don't work or they're things that work at small scale, but not at large scale. For me, it's what makes it so valuable in a space where there are potentially other solutions that aren't evidence-based, but explain why it is so important. And as companies go forward and think about their options, I would be looking as a company for an evidence-based solution.
1: Oh, there's so many ways to answer this. So this is Amy. When I started my career, having an evidence-based solution for me was critical. It was so important because I wanted to be taken seriously. And I was a young woman in a field with not a lot of women. And I worked really hard at great hardship to myself to make sure that everything I did was taken very seriously and could be dissected to make sure that I met the criteria to have it be evidence-based and what I've come to as I've gotten older and more comfortable with myself is the second part of what I said, evidence-based and heart-centered work. And now I value both equally. And so everything that we have done and that I started 15 years ago in my doctoral research has had that heart in it as well. So I come from a background as a qualitative and a quantitative researcher, and for me, they're equally as important. I created the field of parental leave coaching when it didn't exist. So what I had to do, and I fought for two years, I fought my school, my university to do my dissertation on parental leave coaching. And they kept saying, you can't do that because you can't study it. There's nothing that exists there. And I kept saying, that's the whole point. We have to (laughs) create it. And what I ended up doing was going in and looking at the ancillary research in seven different related fields that I felt were pertinent to this topic and pulling on the 30 to 50 years of research in those areas to create this new model and then once I had that, the U.S. still wasn't in a place to really understand what parental leave coaching was, what needed to happen, why it was beneficial to organizations and our society at large. And so I was invited to come pilot in Australia where they were much further ahead and have just recently created a gender Stats reporting requirement for companies. So I went over there and piloted this model that I'd created. And that's really where we got our first quantitative and qualitative data. But what we found was we had 100% retention, we had 86% increase in sense of mattering, in uptake of existing resources within organizations. We started to really see okay, this works. Why does it work? And so we Use different models and tried out different versions of doing this type of coaching. And some we would remove the coach and we use technology to scale. How does that work? Some we did coaching in groups or training in groups because everything we're doing, we're trying to teach that new parent and their manager so that they have an aligned language, an aligned process, and knowledge and expectations. And so we started to find that. One of the most important determinants of if that new parent and therefore their manager in their workplace had a positive and successful experience was that human connection and that human one-on-one person walking with you, holding perspective when things got a little tricky, giving information and skilling you up in a time where it's really compressed and you're learning a lot of different roles and skills in a very short time frame.
0: That's great. I think it's just so important to understand there's a lot that goes into creating evidence-based programs. And it's the proof that you hold yourself to that it does actually work, that it creates change and hundred percent retention is almost unheard of.
1: Isn't that crazy? So that was eight years ago and we just, this Last month, have our first mom who's not staying in her job after our coaching work, and the reason is she's having twins, and she's decided to take a year off. But because of the coaching, what I think companies don't realize is this time is so tied up in retention and attrition. When you have a retained parental leave coach that you're working with, what that coach is doing is also working on behalf of the organization centering new parent, but also considering how do we ensure that this relationship with their work organization stays intact so that should they choose two years down the road, five years down the road to come back, they've left things in a way that sets their organization up for success and leaves them appreciated and valued as if they choose that they need to go. And this mom of twins who I'm just mentioning Her manager called me and just said, I know she's leaving. I'm upset about that. But I know that if she ever comes back to work, she can come back here and she knows that as well. And that, I think that in itself is really powerful.
0: And I think that's so important for companies and any managers listening is that relationship with the retention that's such a struggle at the moment. It's so important.
1: Taking the long view in some of these moments, which is very hard for companies and managers to do. I'm not a pollyanna unpractical person. I come from this org psych background. It is about how do we make our organizations better? How do we make them function? And part of that is making sure that they have money and they're making money to have budgets to keep people and grow. And I really appreciated that in your introduction,
0: how practical it really was in terms of both of your experience being in organizational psychology and HR. And Sue, as you described the experience of having a better second leave outcome because of talking through things with Amy. And so we'll get onto the book and I was just so envious to read it and have not had this when I was going through parental leave. And of course, I'm totally chuckling when I'm reading this book because it is so detailed and so helpful. You literally take everybody through every step. So many questions that people can ask themselves, scripts, it's all there. And I laugh because I do these behavior change guides for each of our episode. And sometimes I'm thinking, do people think I'm insane that I'm explaining in so much detail how hard it is to create a small habit for whatever it is. So I really value this because that's very much my approach to things. It's simple, but it's not easy. And so anything that provides a step-by-step guide. And I was saying to Sue before we got on that having now read the book, I'm sending it on to my sister-in-law because she's expecting and she's a medical fellow. And it's such a difficult position to be in. And when I was pregnant with my son, my first child, I was a postdoc. I was hired by two different institutions. I didn't know that I wasn't going to get parental leave fully from both and that I was going to be paid. It hadn't even crossed my radar to think about it beforehand and then I discovered that one of the institutions wasn't going to support me at all so whatever was happening was going to be half and then I get on the phone and say how long and the lady literally said six weeks and I was like you've got to be kidding me and she was like that's what I did and I was so shocked by this whole experience I wasn't prepared for it And then I think it did also create a big trajectory for me towards burnout, because one of the other issues I was having was setting aside enough time to work on my own research. So I wrote my first $2 million grant during maternity leave. It was such a mess and it was such a bad trajectory. In fact, I remember having to write a check to the institute that was not supporting me because they got my leave day wrong by one day. And they asked me to write them a check to pay them back for that money, and I was just so in this whole lack of support and the mess it was. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry.
1: No, I'm only laughing over here too because it's so common. What you're saying is so common, and we had a wonderful conversation on a um, panel this morning that includes a group that were a supporter of called Project Matriarchs that's really looking and supporting Gen Z to look at these issues. It's not too late to read this book when you're expecting. It's the perfect time, but I want people to be reading it much earlier because it's the decisions we make about our career, our life partner choice, those kinds of things, what jobs we go into and with which manager that will influence your experience as well. So I want to get it into the college kids' hands.
0: And I think having these conversations earlier, for sure, because again, I did not have these conversations with my husband beforehand. And then I was surprised that he didn't know my rule book. You're not alone. Let's really get into the book. Then Sue, maybe if you want to take us through the phases you talk about in the book and the 10 steps that you have, and even some of the Six strategies that also help you some of the ones that can really help you with any challenge in life.
2: On a macro level, we break it into three phases because when we think about parental leave, especially in the United States, what we generally think of is just the time that you are physically away from the workplace. And that is not an accurate way to look at it. It's not going to help you get through the transition. So Amy has broken it into the three phases of leave. You're preparing for leave. So you're in the workplace and you're work focused and trying to get everything, I's dotted and T's crossed before you go. Then you have during leave where you are spending dedicated time bonding with your family. And then you have returning from leave where you're reintegrating into the workplace and you're reintegrating your new roles and identities, right? That you've now accumulated, whether you were already a parent before or not, every new child that you add to your family has an impact and makes the difference in your roles and identities. So we have these three phases of leave and then the 10 touch points are sprinkled across the three phases of leave so the 10 touch points of phase one number one is announcement so how you announce that you're expecting a child does make a difference it makes a big difference and too often we see people are apologetic right (laughs) they're coming at it from not a very powerful leadership type stance or they're not being thoughtful about who they're telling in what order. So we give you a lot of advice on how to announce or how to do any sort of modifications to your tone that are needed if you've already announced and maybe things didn't go the way you wanted to after you announced. Touch point two is assess. And I do want to spend a little bit of time on that because that's where you mentioned the six S's that we call them. So this is an assessment tool that you can use and we walk you through how to do it yourself in the book. But basically you're looking at six different areas before you jump into your plan. You need to know what's my situation. Do I have a good boss? Do I have a boss who's not exactly empathetic to this kind of thing? Am I also moving? Am I also caring for a loved one who's ill? You're looking at all of the pieces of your situation. You are looking at what you bring yourself. So what are your personal attributes that can help you get through this situation? What are your personal challenges that might be liabilities if you don't think about ways to address them? Then you can look at strategies. What are your go-to strategies that you've been successful with in the past? Maybe what are some strategies you've seen other parents use successfully or not so successfully? You get the idea, right? This is a comprehensive look from every angle at your situation so that you can make an action plan, which is the next touch point. That's going to maximize all of your assets and minimize your liability. And your action plan, we stress very heavily that your action plan does not mean that everything is going to go exactly the way you want it to go. And everything's going to go according to your plan. That's really important, right? Some of us, especially if we're very career driven, myself included... If if I make a plan, I'm going to force my will into reality. And that doesn't work with children and babies in particular. (laughs) So you want to... Go through the planning process with an eye towards keeping yourself flexible and keeping yourself open and creating very specific contingency plans so that you are able to flex in the moment when new information comes to light or you're experiencing something in a way that you didn't think you'd experience that way. I know from my personal experience and from so many of the clients that we've worked with, you may think you're going to feel one way about something. And then when the time arrives, you have a completely different emotional response than you were expecting yourself to have. So planning is not just so that we get our way. Planning is so that we can tweak in a way that will make the whole transition smoother. So that's the action planning touch point. And then the final touch point in that first phase is acknowledging the transition to parenthood. I don't think in our culture, we do a great job of this. Yes, we have baby showers and things like that, but taking that deeper reflection time, what do I want this experience to feel like? What are my values when it comes to parenting? What are my partners? If I have a partner, what are my partner's values when it comes to parenting? How do you get as aligned as possible about your values before your child comes and acknowledge the sort of the magnitude of this transition. Yes, newborn babies happen every day and people are adopted every day and families are formed every day. So, it, on that level, it's no big deal, but it is on a personal level. There's an enormous amount of impact and that deserves a chance to slow down and think about it and do some journaling and those kinds of things.
1: So, during leave is really where we want the parent focus to be, where you're really going in. You're soaking up all of this sacred time and letting work wait for you. And so the first way to do that is to set up what at Touchpoint 5 we called appropriately keep in touch. And this is something that we learned from our work in Australia. They have what's called keep in touch days. And those are paid days while people are on leave where they can reconnect with work. They often use them towards the end when they're getting ready to go back. So we've taken this concept because it's so useful. and We found it to be so incredibly valuable to new parents who are returning, especially new moms who are gone for their sometimes up to a year who are questioning their confidence. And if they should even go back, those keep in touch days were really useful. So what we've done here in the U.S. where we have the opposite. We have people aren't allowed to work while they're on leave. It's a communication plan so that you are able to let your organization know how you would like to be in touch. If at all, if you want to be updated, if there's a major reorg or a new boss or something major happens, who do you want as a gatekeeper for yourself? If anyone, do you want information funneled through that person? Do you want to be contacted via email, via phone, like down to the nitty gritty, as you <laughs> talked about <it. laughs> obsessive that way, how to keep in touch, how you want to be communicated with while you're away. And what that does is it Let's everyone around you know how they can best support you, how they can talk, and it erases any of that confusion. People usually are too scared to even try. So we see that it leads to isolation. The next one, touch point six, is advocate. And advocate is so <laughs> critical in all parts of your life. That could be advocating for yourself, advocating with your child at the doctor's office, advocating for yourself at work. So we spend a lot of time talking about the importance of advocacy and helping people with a few tools and ways that we've found are really effective during that. And then touch point seven is about arrangements for return. And that's really pausing before you return and looking at your jokingly say, pull out your dusty action plan from way back when, and see what still works and what doesn't now that you are looking at the world through your new parent to this child, the eyes you have now. And then phase three is returning from leave. That's where there is that combined working parent focus, where you're really trying to navigate both of these roles and do them both well. And so there's a lot of challenges at that time. It's so complex. Often. People are very excited to get back to work, or they're really not wanting to go back to work. There's not a lot of neutral in that time. So, touch point eight is acknowledge the transition to working parent. And that's that counterpoint to Sue was talking about at the end of the preparing for leave phase, really seeing how big this transition is and making sure you have the supports where you need them. We often do a meal train when a baby arrives when really we need to be doing a meal train when you go back to work like in addition things like that and then touch point 9 is adjustment adjustment is just paying attention to those dials dialing up dialing down so you get that exact right tune that you want for your life going forward and doing that with kindness and acceptance and grace towards yourself, knowing it's part of the process. And then that last one, touch point 10, is access to ongoing career development. We often see that companies don't know what to do with somebody who just comes back. They're mostly not communicating. So a lot of this book is really about how to communicate well and form relationships well at work and home so that they are mutually beneficial and and create win-wins. And so that access to career development is really making yourself pause and think about, okay, here's where I am now. What do I want my career to look like from here forward or for here for the next six months, the next one year? This doesn't have to be permanent. And how can I work with my organization, with my manager to make sure that we build that in? So if you want a stretch assignment or you want to do more travel or whatever it is, but speaking up and saying that. And if you don't, then communicating that as well. That
0: was great. So it was fascinating to hear that you had learned from Australia and then coming back in and being able to apply some of it to the US. But what have you learned just in the last few months as paid leave is on the table and off the table and on the table about advocacy? How do we make this advocacy for paid leave? work here in the U.S. What is it that we're going to have to do to help the government step up?
1: This is the one where I just go so crazy. Just for your listeners, in case they don't know, what you're talking about is in the Build Back Better Act that was presented originally, there were 12 weeks of paid leave included in that, which would have been the first time but the United States had a federally mandated paid leave policy. Right now, we are the only country that does not. There's a couple smaller countries, but we are the only industrialized wealthy country that does not. And it is a stain on our reputation. It is outrageous and ridiculous. We do have nine states plus D.C. that have taken the... Reigns on this themselves and passed leave laws at the state level. There's some real pros and cons to that. Pros are mostly for the new parents, which is wonderful that they have some paid leave the cons are what it does to our country in terms of division and confusion and multi state employers having to navigate outrageously complicated leave laws. And it's just ridiculous. What I would normally be saying is call your senators, call your representatives, go to paidleaveforall.org forward slash take action and sign up to push for that to be in the Build Back Better Act. The 12 weeks was whittled down to four. And right now we're looking at Build Back Better not passing. What we've learned about advocacy is it is vitally important and we need to keep it up and get louder. As I said earlier, when there's chaos, I really believe there's opportunity. And right now with the last two years of the pandemic, all we've had for working parents is chaos. And so for the first time, this is really impacting so many people, if not all the people in the United States. And so there's much more awareness and realization of, oh, wow, that is really hard. I didn't notice that you were going off and doing that and having that experience without any support whatsoever, including pay. But there's a big difference between what we're doing. And paid leave. So, what I'm talking about is how do we do this culturally? How do we support parental leave in all of the ways it needs to be supported, whether it's paid or not? And so, our book isn't about paid leave. It's about you are probably not going to have paid leave. If you're lucky to be one of the 23% of people in the United States that even have one day of paid leave, we are so happy for you. And fight for all those that don't. And here are some tools so that you can navigate this well, whether you're paid or not. That's a really helpful
0: perspective because it still is challenging in any way it rolls out. Sue, maybe we can end with you thinking about the companies because obviously you're working with companies and they could become Kurtz for leave or for companies that aren't yet Thinking about getting support for leave. What's one thing that they could do today to get started in this process?
2: I'll tackle that from two angles. First, it really behooves companies to help with the fight for a federal policy for paid leave because right now it's all on the company. So if they're feeling the brunt of the pain, That the employees are feeling because those employees are peeling off for financial reasons, right? So that creates retention and recruitment problems at the company. If a company wants to offer paid leave, it's completely up to them to shoulder the costs associated with that. If we had a federal policy, that cost burden would either be completely removed from the employer, depending on the model and the plan you're looking at, or it would be a shared cost. And it would be more like the employee kicks in a little per check and the employer kicks in a little per check. So it's definitely for the benefit of the companies to join the fight for paid leave. We have clients who operate in several states and it's a nightmare logistically for them because every state may have a different rule around parental leave and it's up to the company to navigate all of that. So it would definitely be to the company's advantage to just join the fight. And many of them are in lieu of that, or simultaneously while we're fighting for a paid leave, there are so many things that employers can do to improve the parental leave experience. Number one is buy the parental leave playbook, because all of those touch points, when we go into a company, we're teaching these 10 touch points from the employee angle and from the manager and the leadership angle. They're all the same touch points. So that's the first easiest thing to do and a very low cost method to learn more and really implement some meaningful changes. I
1: just want to say, don't just buy it for yourself give it to your employees, give it to your new parents, give it to your managers, have us come in and do a training.
2: It sounds self-promotional. Amy and I are not making gobs of money off of this book. And we sacrificed a lot writing the book during the pandemic just to get it into the hands of people who need it because we know a better way. And not everybody has to reinvent the wheel with every new lead. The number one thing employers can do to get started is simply talk to your working parent employees because I guarantee they have ideas about how to improve their own lives while still keeping the company interests
0: in mind as well. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinekerr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care.
3: You're a fire. Feel the power